You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense with your host, Doug Thorpe. Here's Doug. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm your host, Doug Thorpe. And today I've invited a, uh, a guest who himself is a somewhat of a serial entrepreneur. He's a world traveler, uh, a whale of an interesting guy to talk to, as you'll see in just a moment. His name is Patrick Noel Daly. Patrick, welcome to the show, man. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here today. Uh if you immediately detect any little bit of accent, Patrick, uh, tell the folks where you're from and what sure, your hell is home territory. I'm from a little place called Gary Vaux down the southern coast of Ireland, right smack in the middle of the south coast, a couple of minutes from the sea. Uh, so it was a great place to grow up. Uh, I brought that accent. I traveled a lot, but I think the accent is probably still hanging around. Maybe after a couple of pints of Guinness, it probably gets a bit stronger. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> No doubt. No doubt. Well, uh, we're we're glad you're here, but uh, today you're over in Canada, right? Yeah, I came to Canada a while ago. I moved from the let's say the Ireland, Europe, uh, over to uh, the US and Canada about well, maybe two years ago now at this stage. I started traveling in 2018, end of a phase of life in Ireland, and I had been around the world on business, and I kind of had seen the the hotels, the meeting rooms, the aircraft, the airports, and so on. But I hadn't really seen the world. So I said in 2018, kind of took the foot off the gas on an executive level and said, I'm going to go see the world. And I started traveling for about a year and a half. And then COVID came around and clipped my wings, stopped my travels. And I said, if I'm going to resettle anywhere, I was actually down in the Caribbean and I met a couple, a Canadian couple, and there was a U.S. couple there as well. Um, and they said... Um, if you're going to live anywhere, why don't you try the east coast of Canada? Because it's a very strong Irish heritage in that part. And, and then swing by Chicago and go to New York and go to like all the other places um, across the U.S. Uh, many, many places in the U.S. which make us Irish guys feel very welcome, um, including where you're from. And I have to say, uh, Houston yep. is a good spot. Um, good few Irish pubs down that part of the world as well. For sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I got one right in my neighborhood here. Uh, named Clancy's, by the way. Uh, so, uh, well, uh, tell the folks a little bit more about your journey in business, all the things that you, that you've done, and some of the trails and uh, journeys you've been on there. Okay, I'll try and cram down twenty plus years into a couple of minutes if I can. I started out. I came from an entrepreneurial uh, kind of household. Uh, we were. My father had a business and. You know, we'd be sitting at the table and uh, having having dinner and uh, talking about like contracts and where the next uh, where the next job was going on. He had a engineering and kind of plant plant business, so um, machinery business, and we were always talking engineering, talking business. Um, then it, when I got to fourteen, I was in school doing my second level of school, and then summer holidays was going to be two months uh, of of summer holiday. And I said, you know what, I'll try and see how it goes here. So I got a food van, set up a food van on the beach down in Southern Ireland, started uh, selling burgers and fries um, for, for a couple of months. And uh, it was great because what an introduction to business, you know, seeing yeah. I'm in this small, confined space, high heat, um, cooking food all day, listening to hangry customers at five o'clock in the evening looking for food. And um it, customer service, you know, it's customer service 101. Um, and I love the kind of buzz of uh, 
taking something and just making it and converting it into value and seeing people smile, walk away, pay their money for their goods. And I thought this is, this is a great way to go. I guess what that was doing was it was lighting a fire of entrepreneurship in me, which I didn't know I had at that time. Um, a few years later, I started up, uh, actually one year before Google launched, I set up Autolink, which is a, a search engine. Um, we didn't even know what the word search engine or the, the, the term search engine was at the time. But I thought, uh, I was looking at this newspaper one day, I was looking to buy a car and I saw this big mass of data and I said, this is going to take hours, you know, to go through all of this. And then I thought, light bulb <clears throat> comes on in the head and I say, if I could take all of that data and punch in whatever it is, like uh, the brand of the car, the color of the car and my budget, and I get a shortlist, wouldn't that be great? Long story short, six, eight weeks later, a guy that I knew uh, was studying computer science and engineering, wrote a program. We set up Autolink from a bedroom and started selling advertising, age, uh, advertising uh, sales and selling cars essentially for, other, for the car dealerships and made a chunk of money. I was going to college at night and I was working by day as well as fitting in that business. So I had to make decisions. And one of the decisions that I made was not to scale up Autolink at that time, which in hindsight, if you look at companies like Google, now, <laughs> I probably made a wrong decision there. Um, but, you know, I had obligations. I couldn't make kind of risk-free decisions or totally silly decisions, stupid decisions. So I did that. And... Um, but the learning again from Autolink was huge because I got to sell every day. I remember the first sale that I had when I was presenting this program to a, a sales manager and he was looking at the screen. And honestly, the 10 seconds of waiting for his response was like a year, you know, yeah. and just the anxiety is building inside and you're trying to keep it under control. Um, and you don't want to seem too eager because their price goes way down at that stage if you're going to go, yes, I want to do this. And he said, that's amazing. I'll never forget those two words. It's like these imprints in your brain over time, you know, that you right. never right. forget those memories. Um, so LinkedIn, I went into a year later, I set up a medical support surface company. Let me explain that a little bit. I was talking to a head of nursing and um, in a huge hospital, in an 800, 900 bed hospital. And she said to me, if you can design a product that is pressure reducing, in other words, it helps to prevent pressure ulcers, pressure sores, as well as making it kind of easy to use, easy to function and not too expensive, then we could use that in our hospitals. Um, so I said, like, no challenge there. That's, that should be an easy one to do. Six months later, um, I was driving one night very late and from, from Dublin to Cork back in Ireland. And I came up with this idea of putting piece A, piece B and piece C together. You know, it's like innovation as opposed to core invention. That product then, a year later, having done clinical trials, the product uh, was launched. And I said at that time, you know, I think the infection control function is really, really important. And she said, yeah, okay. The head of nursing said, that's okay, but we want it as a pressure reducing surface and it functions clinically. You've got all your rubber stamps here. It's all good. Three years, uh, three years ago, when COVID came around, she called me and she said, you were right about the infection control. So we're now um, scaling that up and we're making that product available. A sleep surface is essentially something we all use on average six and a half hours out of 24 every day. So we're making that medical technology available to a wider audience, people at home. Because right. traditionally, you just can't break, you can't clean the interior of our sleep surfaces, typically, of a mattress surface. 
So we've changed that now so that you can actually take off the top cover, launder that, uh, and then interior, the interior core, our core, um, you can wipe that down and it's disinfected. It's great for everybody, but the asthma, allergy, um, and people with poor sleep, you know, this is probably a, an ideal product as well because it allows you to adjust the sleep surface to meet your own liking and preference, uh, comfort preference. So all of those things congealed. Um, in quick summary, I was in 1999, I was Young Entrepreneur of the Year in Ireland, um, and I was building probably at that stage, I was involved in or building three or four businesses at, at that time. Um, I built the medical support surface company. I licensed the technologies out and I still support that. And then I went into developing products, different innovations, like products for aircraft seating, uh, various segments. Four years ago when I started traveling, left Ireland, I did more mentoring and advising and using the experience that I've gained over the years, the mistakes that I've made, sharing those with entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs and make it easy, easier for them to succeed. Yeah. Um, if I can share information and experience to help them to avoid the pitfalls, it's mission accomplished. Well, it's interesting. I, I think for me, one thing that stands out in your story is the innovation part. Uh, a lot of times I hear people, particularly those that have been in big corporate for a long time, they just, they're hungry for that independence, that sense of self-governing and, you know, self-actualization. So they try to lock in on one thing to go create a business around. And it's not really about that serial innovation. You hear about serial entrepreneurs, but this is what I would call serial innovation. And, um, on one hand, I, I would say, I guess that's just one other angle to what it means to be an entrepreneur. And there's nothing wrong with those guys that want to jump out and try to be an entrepreneur. Many of them, what they'll do, they'll go the franchising route. They'll go engage and invest in a franchise model, have great success, build two, three, five, 10, 15 of those and, and keep it going. As you gone the route though, of this innovation thing, what, what do you think is one of the biggest challenges you've faced as you come up with this bright idea late at night, driving to Dublin, <laughs> what do you? What's the first roadblock you run into when you've got an idea like that? So the first thing I think when people, I love the way you you pitch that because innovation is fundamentally important to a business. It's a mindset, uh, not just for the business, for an entrepreneur, for an innovator. You know, we've got to make change as a species. We need to, we need to see things develop. We need to innovate at all times. To answer your question specifically, there are multiple challenges for innovation and invention. An innovator is going to find it very difficult unless they have a team around them, unless they have infrastructure to help get the, the product off the ground. When I started, I had zero. I had no money and I had no, I had no infrastructure. I didn't have supports. Um, you know, I had done well in the businesses, but I'd also been a teenager, so I had a good life and I, uh, whatever I made, I probably spent <laughs> when I got into making, making businesses and developing products. I had to find ways to fund it, you know. I remember with Autolink, I had like probably a, a budget of $400 um, to start that business. And it's a question of, I guess, hustling and figuring out how and where and who. 
And there's also the aspect of convincing, you know. Um, the word, I don't think, I think we need to use the word convincing instead of, instead of selling to a large degree. Because like sales is about convincing another person or another party that you've got something valuable. So convincing is critically important for an innovator. Before you do any of that, though, I think you need to assess the feasibility and viability of what you're about to do. Because many innovators, they grow, they spin their wheels and take off, you know, and spend a bunch of money and time and effort and then realize, well, there isn't really a market for this technology. There isn't really a market for this idea. Um, so as well as determining that there's a gap in the market, you've got to make sure there's a market in the gap. Um, and when you do that for your own purposes, like your own self-evaluation, your own kind of product evaluation, your, all those aspects, you're much more convincing them because you've, you've convinced yourself, you know, and you've looked at all data critically. I love the passionate aspect and the kind of enthusiastic and the driven aspect of innovation of our innovators but there also has to be a realism factor and this is maybe tying in with your title the common sense factor common sense is a very very important aspect of everything you do not just in life but in business yeah. because business is largely common sense you know in every bucket when you think about it common yeah. sense is necessary <laughs> You you've you packed a number of things in what you just said, and I want to try to unpack it a little bit. First, let me start on that sales idea. I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs that they, they've got a wonderful idea. They've already had some success with it, but they fundamentally hate the notion of doing sales. They call it uh, personality, uh they they don't want to put themselves on somebody else. They they don't like that being done to them. Therefore, they won't do it to anybody else. But it it is creating that story about your offering because let's face it, without sales, you really don't have a business. One hundred percent. And I like what you said, and this is honestly for me the first time I've heard it put this way. You said there is a level of convincing, not selling, and. For me, where that kind of bumps into something else that swirls around a lot in many of the coaching circles I live in and participate in, there's a lot of people who are supposed, you know, sales growth experts and what they'll tell you, oh, don't think about sales, think about service. You're serving your client with what you're offering. And I think that's great, but I think where that falls short is where your idea comes in. There still has to be a convincing story that goes with it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it, I really like the way you crystallize that because I was asked the question, I've just finished a book called Just Start, Just Startup. And it's a, it's a guide to building startups. It's a short, concise guide for entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneur, entrepreneurs. There's an aspect in there about sales. I was asked this question before at a conference and they said, well, how important is sales? And I said, let's face it. If you don't have sales, you don't have a business. You have an idea, you know? Ideas don't pay bills. If you, if you get sales, then you have a business. You have a commercial entity. That's the first thing. The second question, the second part of, of your comment, I remember being also asked by an engineer, you know, they had this great idea and this great product. And the engineer said to me, look, I'm really scared of sales. I don't want to do a selling bit. And I said to this, this uh, person, I said, 
are you, do you believe in your product? And she said, yes. I said, do you believe that it will give value to somebody else? Yes. Can you articulate that message? And she said, yes. And I said, well, you can sell. You, it's not a science, you know. You need to believe that you are giving value, that you are providing a product that is going to be commercially sensible, commercially viable, that is feasible in the market, in, in other words, that it will compete, and that you're fundamentally giving value to other people. If you do that, you don't need to sell. You just need to tell them, convince them. That's all. And she said, when you package it like that, it completely changes the game. You know, I don't need to be a salesperson. I need to be somebody that convinces that my idea is valuable. And that's a different, different game. I think that's very well put. And, and you said something else in your original statement. You, you talked about a concept that's been in business school since I can remember, and that's a long time ago, um, the idea of finding a gap in the market. And I, I think people, again, gurus and coaches and things that want to help people grow their business, they'll talk about that finding the gap. But I really like the way you, you said your version of it. There has to be market in the gap, too. So, so explain that a little more. Talk, talk a little yeah. more about that. Because I've seen that kind of guru element as well. And honestly, as we say in Irish, people, I don't know if I speak, I don't know if it works over in your side of the pond, but we take it with a, with a pinch of salt. You know, we look at it and we say, okay, is this something that is actually worthwhile or is it just, you know, doesn't make any sense and won't benefit me in, in, in my day to day? But the market and the gap is fundamentally important because if you find a so-called gap in the market and it's not filled, there are usually probably two reasons for that. One, it wasn't spotted. And if you're in that position, you're in a very lucky place. Go for it. Or two, somebody has spotted it, tested it, tried it, burned a bunch of money trying to fill it <laughs> and go after it and failed. So really, they're the two elements of that. Now, markets do change. You know, over time, what is a gap in today's market may not be a, a feasible, viable place to go. But in five years' time, that might be a completely different situation. So it's very time-dependent. Um, but the first thing I would do is <clears throat> as an innovator and as, let's say, in inventor, innovator and entrepreneur, I probably put the entrepreneur hat on first, having come up with the idea or the possibility. And then I go, entrepreneur usually has a very good numbers head. You know, we look at it and will, will I make money from this? What's the margin? What's the sale price potential? What's the cost of this thing? Is it going to, am I going to make money out of it? And when you do that analysis initially, then you don't spend your wheels and waste your time and money on developing a product or a service for that gap in the market. Just do the first assessment and try to put on an investor slash entrepreneur hat when you're doing that. And it'll just save you, I find, in my experience, it just save you. You know, it, uh, all of that reminds me, the, the gap in the market and the market in the gap, I, uh, it reminds me of an experience I had in prior to 2008 when we had the last big financial crisis. I was involved at that time. I, I was an entrepreneur and I had had uh, I, I had gotten into a niche. I was an old uh, mortgage banker back in my banking days. And the at least in the U.S., the, the mortgage business at the time was paper intensive. If you went to buy a house, you signed a stack of paper about that thick. 
And then that paper had to be handed around and shipped around to different parties as those loans got sold. And every mortgage company had a huge army in their back office shoveling this paper. And so I and a few other people came up with a sort of simultaneous idea to create outsource companies to do that paper push. We figured we could build scale by focusing on just that piece of the chain and sure. offer that offer that as a service. And, and the sales pitch was pretty fundamental for a individual mortgage company that was a variable cost you didn't know as your volume went up and down you had to either hire people or drop back and so forth and and that was a management nightmare for the mortgage companies so our sales proposition was turn your variable cost into a fixed cost we'll just give you a price per file we'll do all that stuff for you you don't have to worry about it ching ching right Everything on paper sounded like just a dynamite idea. Well, there were myself and probably six or eight other entrepreneurs nationwide created these companies to do this stuff. And we got some early adopters on board and, and things started growing and it was going pretty well. But there was always a tension. What we all unilaterally discovered is Companies didn't like giving up control of that piece mm -hmm. because the success of that piece really meant their liquidity as, they, as their business. If that file couldn't get delivered and accepted by the buyer, there was no money. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah, right. and, and mortgage bankers just didn't, in their gut, just never really wanted to give up that piece of the process because that controlled their destiny. Even though we were creating great success, we were accelerating turn times and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. But there was a psycho-emotional element that nobody anticipated. And when the crash finally happened in 2008, of course, the mortgage business was front and center for that uh, meltdown. And guys like me and my colleagues that were doing that, we just evaporated overnight. Right, right, right. I, had to, I had to close the business. There, there was no activity for us. But I guess the lessons that you took from that were, were immense, you know, were, were detailed, deep and broad. Oh, yeah. Because we talk about like business failure. I don't see it as a failure. I see it as an opportunity to try again. You know, take the learnings that you've taken from the past and put it into, into gear. Yeah. Something yeah. that you mentioned as well, I think maybe there's a timing spectrum factor on these changes as well because if you look i remember you know maybe 10 years ago the number of employees was your was your kind of yardstick as to how big your company was nowadays if you have less fixed cost employees and more freelancers for example you have a very solid top line you know you're generating solid sales your cost base is under control it's flexible in that you can you can, you can take it up if you want and increase the number of people or you can take it down if you want very quickly. Right. I'm, not, right. I'm not saying that's ideal for every business, but I'm saying that freelancing aspect, and I think COVID has accelerated this. Oh, people yeah. realize, you know, in the last two, or two years while we're all at home trying to figure out what to do and our online world has, has opened up and our virtual meeting world and so on, we're kind of saying, well, I can work from home for four hours and get everything that I need to do done instead of going to an office for, on a nine to five basis, and uh, you know, that's the employee, let's say, from the employer's perspective, 
they don't need the huge building any longer because they don't have like 5,000 people in a, in a large building. Half of them are working remotely. Right. And all these things change. And so the way you, you put it there about, you know, minimizing cost and, and creating flexibility around models of business. Traditionally, people were afraid to do that because they didn't control it. Yeah. Now yeah. it's a different story. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I agree. I agree. I'll tell you what, Patrick, uh, looking at the clock here, we need to take a short commercial break in this show. But when we come back, I, I want to talk a little bit more about that employee dynamic that you just touched on. And we'll do that right after this message. Business is all about solving complex problems as fast as you can create them. Become the best problem solver by leading others to greatness, too. And the first step is going to DougThorpe.com. Doug Thorpe is known globally for coaching entrepreneurs and business leaders, improving their performance and the work output of everyone surrounding them. You can find health, wealth, and happiness by learning to lead others to health, wealth, and happiness. Go to DougThorpe.com now and order Doug's books or hire him to coach your managers. That's Doug, T-H-O-R-P-E.com. All right, everyone, we're back. This is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. I'm Doug Thorpe, and my guest today is Patrick Noel Daly. He himself is a serial entrepreneur. And when we uh, kind of led into the break, we were talking about the shift that has come out of the pandemic. There is a seismic shift in the work world. Employees everywhere have just upended the mindset about what it means to be employed by someone. And uh, there's a, I've, I've had clients that call it a new kind of empowerment. You know, when they got back together with their teams in person, when they could, they said there was this palpable sense of mindset change that these guys were showing up. The same, if you're a business unit leader, the same smiling faces that were sitting around the table, they might still be smiling, but now they got an attitude <laughs> and uh, they're questioning what your leadership is going to be about. And I hear that time and time again with all of the business leaders that I work with. So, Patrick, as, as you've traveled the world, what are, what are you hearing from folks, both the freelancers that are out there and, and business owners that are struggling to try to realign and recalibrate their workforce? I think generally speaking, this whole shift to the freelancing model of the working from home, work, remote working is a good thing because I was asked the question, it was back in the Netherlands in 2020, and I did this interview for um, uh, on a podcast. And uh, they said, well, what do you see as the future? This is kind of like COVID wasn't really engaged at that time. It was maybe maybe end of 2019, I think. So they said, well, what do you see as the future for working, for, for the work model? And I said, well, my, my approach is very, very straightforward. If somebody works with me and my team, I said to them, I don't care if you work at 4 o'clock in the day or 4 o'clock in the morning. You know, if it's 4 a.m. or 4 p.m., I don't mind. As long as the job gets done. I don't mind if you do four hours each day instead of eight hours, or if you do like 12 hours another day to get it done. As long as the job gets done, you get paid. It's as simple as that. And they were kind of saying, you know, when do you see this happening? And in a pre-COVID setting, I was kind of saying maybe five years from now, we might start to do that. Then COVID came along and that accelerated everything. Yeah. What, what comes to mind right now is the quality and quantity ratio. And quality of life and quantity of life. We need quantity of life in that we need an income. We need to pay our bills. We need to survive. But quality of life is very important as well. 
You know, if we can finish at 12 o'clock on Friday or noon on Friday and go for a coffee or a beer or whatever with our friends, meet our family, do whatever we want to do, go for a game of golf um, and have that afternoon off instead of toiling and sweating to get, uh, to get something done, then great. Obviously, the job needs to be done. It's our function in our role as a team member. We've got to do our work. But if we're flexible in terms of time and time availability and time input, that usually contributes to quality of life. So when you mention um, about people coming back with a smile on their face thinking, you know, I'm buoyant, this is all good. It's optimism, it's happiness. Happiness is a very, very important currency. Um, and for me as an entrepreneur, sometimes times are difficult in the entrepreneurship world because you hear no more often than you do, particularly in the early, uh, than, than you do the yes, the yes word um, in the early stages. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to be blessed and full of optimism. Happiness is something that is your mainstay. Uh, so being happy in what you do, being flexible in that sense, and knowing that you've got level, that level of flexibility in the entrepreneurship world, I think was always seen as a bonus to the entrepreneur. Now everybody can do that. Every employee has that option at least. I realize there are some jobs where people have to do a fixed shift and do a fixed number of hours and they have to be physically present. But in the, in, outside of that, I think flexibility is key for happiness. I, I agree with you. And, and back to the, the driver that maybe has changed everybody's mindset, I, not to get morbid or anything, but I think it's safe to say everybody took a visit to their own mortality through COVID because there was a period of time nobody knew what this was about. I mean, this, this could have... If you listen to the press, which I stopped doing officially early on in the process, you know, it was going to wipe out half the planet. And and so, you know, you're asking yourself, even if you're a fairly well-educated, thoughtful person, you're going, this could be serious, you know, and then, and what is this thing? So we all kind of took a detour and, and, and ask ourselves the question, you know, what is there here? And, uh, I think that's hung with us. Some have gone so far as to call it a, a mild form of PTSD that everybody had. And, um, uh, but as people started processing that and thinking about their work, they did find the flexibility. And I tell people now, I don't even use the phrase work-life balance anymore. I've kind of erased that from my vocabulary I think about the, the notion of a blend or a harmony because mm -hmm. I think even balance before the pandemic made sense. People were talking about the, the give and take of how to, how to get everything you want. But the problem with that model is it was just that you have to define a give and a take and that's not reality. No, no, it's not. And I think as well, you know, uh, for me, when I was building startups, people would say to me, you're working like 16, 18 or days. Sometimes you're burning the midnight oil a lot. You, you've got to do, you've got a lot of plates spinning at any one time. And I didn't ever see that as work. You know, I saw that as my kind of glorified hobby. Yes, it was my job. It was what I had to do. I had to get it done. But like I saw it as enjoyable work. And I think what's happening now is people are looking at their work role and saying, I need to enjoy this as well, you know, because I think if you enjoy what you do, the, the old saying is, if you enjoy what you do, you never work a day in your life. 
Right. Yeah. Right. And I think nowadays as well, and with the, I think maybe COVID, sometimes you know, the universe is a way of, re- of rebalancing things in that regard. And um, I think now people are saying, you know, I thought I was going to live the average age for a lifespan for a male is like seventy-eight years old. Like we saw twenty-eight-year-olds passing away during COVID, unfortunately, and so age was irrelevant. Um, quality of life, I think, is the primary driver. Because let's face it, back, getting back to that, happiness is the most valuable currency. Um, if you're happy, you'll be a lot more productive. You'll yeah. be a lot more creative. You'll be a lot more innovative. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm reminded, of, uh, I, I chuckle as you were saying that. I, um, I've got a group of guys that I meet with on a regular basis. We were actually friends in college. And we all went to school together and, and experienced many of the same things the years we were at university. And uh, uh, we've now started a, uh, about once a quarter, we, we meet in a little town near Austin, Texas, and we have to drive because we're all scattered all over the state. And so and Texas is a little, you know, it's a large geography. So uh, most of us two, two and a half hour drives, but nonetheless, we get together. And this last time we just did that last week. And uh, one of the guys, we were, we, we always do a quick check-in, you know, is, is all the medical stuff. Okay. You know, anything <laughs> new and different yeah. we're that age. And, and one guy, the famous line is if, if, if I'd known I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. <laughs> uh but uh fortunately most of us were in pretty good shape few few minor defects as you would expect on a three hundred thousand mile vehicle you know but but, uh back to the uh the workforce idea i I do want to touch on the entrepreneur hiring freelance help what's your experience been being able to grow and expand a team relying on that approach to it? Honestly, it's been very positive um, because I find that everybody is in a win-win mindset. You know, there's no catch. Instead of paying somebody, I don't know, X number of dollars per annum as a salary and it's on my profit and loss, it's on my cost sheet, um, I can say I've got a project to do. I need to design a website, for example, and it's going to cost me three grand, you know, uh, job done, sign off, uh, and I get the product I, that I requested. So from a cost management perspective, which is crucial to any enterprise, whether you're, you know, just a minnow or whether you're a, a huge, massive company, cost control is necessary. But from particularly the startup and scale-up size perspective, or the small to medium-sized enterprises, that kind of cost flexibility, I think, is crucially important that you get the product that you want in a package, you pay your, you get your invoice, you pay your bill, job done. Yeah. And that's yeah. flexibility team. So you can run an enterprise that has the potential, if we were to reverse it back to the old model, you might have needed 50 people to run your, your business. Nowadays, you could probably do that with, with maybe 10 and freelance the rest on a flexible basis. Right. Um, and that contributes to a couple of different things. You've got your core, let's call it A team, they're your people that are in-house, and then you've got the external subcontracting uh, uh, services around that. And your profit margin, if you manage this well, is going to be higher because your cost base is lower. So all that level of flexibility 
it also gives you a wider view on how to see opportunities and extract value from opportunities. Yeah. So much more flexible. As a startup or scale up, you need to be nimble. You need to be able to move fast. And I think the freelancing model helps that. Yeah. I, I, and I agree with you. And I, I'm also thinking there's another dimension as an employer. And, and again, I'll go back to my, uh, my mortgage company example that I was using. I had a situation. I had one guy on my team that had, back in the day happened to be a smoker. And he you know, did not smoke in the office, but he was heavily addicted and needed to go out once an hour to have a smoke. And that was just his thing. And I was generally okay with that. To your point, I was like, I really don't care how you use your time as long as you get my job done. I, I have a production level I need you to hit. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing that, I don't care how you get there, you know, and, and that was always my mantra. But here was the rub that, that kept me spun up. Other employees would look at this guy getting up, leaving his desk on a 10 minute break every hour. And then they would want to go do something. Right. And it wasn't smoking, but they, you know, they would want to accumulate all that time and maybe go down the street to the coffee shop because we didn't have one in our building and their volume wasn't the same. And so it, it became a rub. But when I challenged them on their volume, they would point to this guy. Yeah, but he's always out on break, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh-huh. and I mean, while the answer was simple to talk about, it was just a nuisance to have that dynamic going on and people pointing fingers and self-rationalizing what they ought to be able to do because somebody else is doing something. And really when you go freelance and remote, you eliminate all of that. (laughs) Yeah. People don't really care. Like because they can't see you sitting under the pantry with your, with your laptop, you know, um, in the sunshine, you know, nobody, your product, which is your output, which is your work element, is produced on time and submitted. Yeah. So the other people just are not looking over your shoulder or theirs to see what's going on. And there's no office politics. <laughs> right. None of this is happening. Uh, people are just producing. And the, uh, the, the, the benefit, the upside really from that is that people then have, they can reallocate their time to more quality time, more family time, um, uh, whatever they consider quality time. Um, and that takes their happy meter way up. If their happy meter goes up, their output goes up, in my experience. I know it's from my personal perspective. If I'm smiling and if I'm happy, like part of that book that I've just finished, one of the key tips at the back is stay smiling, you know? Even when when it's raining, I put a post on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago, smile even when it's raining. That's good coming from an Irish guy now because we get a lot of that rain. Um, let me uh, let me wrap up with one other question. You 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 tied in and you mentioned the common sense aspect, and and I'm a big advocate of that. I mean, the name of the show is Leadership Powered by Common Sense. It, tell me more about your view of the common sensibility that's available in business. Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question because I've seen it in the theoretical side. Where, where you get your four years, five years degree in business and you get your MBA and so on, and they give you all of the theoretical basis. But fundamentally, unless you apply common sense to a business decision, it's probably, in my, in my view at least, it's going to be flawed to some extent. 
because you need to look at it and say, okay, all the numbers stack up. Everything seems good from a theoretical, from a practical perspective. I've done my market research. And what I always do at the end is I put a common sense eye over it, you know, just say, does this actually common work in common sense? I'll give you an example. Way back when we were launching a product, everything looked good on paper. And I said, I had this kind of gut feeling that it wasn't just yet complete. And I had this, that was the common sense factor kicking in because we were taught from a very young age back home in Ireland when we were growing up, you know, um, in the kind of an entrepreneurial setting where my father had, had his business. We were taught to use your common sense compass. Um, so I looked at this product and I said, I'm not entirely sure. Everybody's signing off on it, but I'm not entirely sure. So I visited and called about maybe 10 of the would-be customers for this product. And the amount of information that I got at common sense level caused that entire plan to change because I spoke with people who would be our, the people who were putting their checkbook on the table to pay for the service and product. And that common sense factor caused me to rebalance my decision-making process. And I still use that nowadays. I would suggest and urge people to use the common sense factor. Maybe this is where experience and mentoring and advising comes in as well. You know, um, I've been in this space for 25 years now. I'm happy to mentor and advise and write that book for people to help them out because I use the 25 years of wins, successes, but also scars and mistakes uh, to help people along and to help them to avoid pitfalls. A large part of that is me catching that 25 years of common sense and experience and putting it into a package that helps other people. I'm not trying to make a dollar out of this. You know, I'm just simply saying, this is my view. This is my experience. This is my common sense radar kicking in. What do you think? And let them take it, make their own decisions. I'll suggest, I'll advise, and I'll give them the benefit of experience. But it's ultimately their decision. But I think it can't be undersold. This common sense factor, I think, is absolutely necessary. I see it all the time. And there's a, there's a new phrase or acronym that's surfaced in big business. It's called VUCA, V-U-C-A. And it stands for uh, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Those are all big words. But when you go inside one of the Fortune 500 global brands, that's what you hear is those four things. It's everybody's got this sense of urgency, but they don't know where they're going. It's complex out the wazoo. And instructions are very ambiguous and people are running around trying to figure out what to do next. And I, when I, when I get a chance to work with those kind of executives, I'll early on in our discussion, I'll, I'll ask them a question that I consider is kind of a, all right, tell me your situation. How do you move from A to B? And I'll get this doctoral thesis about the details of their business and the markets and the customers. And and I'm going, going, (laughs) time out, stop. (laughs) And you know what I tell them? I'll I'll tell them, look, I want to go on record right now. We're just getting started in this coaching. I'm going to give you the credit for being the smartest guy in this room right now. The two of us talking, you're the smartest guy in the room. So stop. Yeah. (laughs) All that stuff. Answer my simple question. How do you go from A to B? Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned UCA. I would say keep it (laughs) E-A-S-Y. Keep it easy. (laughs) That's right. The best way to go, because when you break it down into bite-sized chunks that people can actually 
digest and take on board, it's a much easier life. And uh, we're, well, we're, we're, we're here to, to get benefit of that. And it's so important. And one of the critical elements of being a successful leader in business is you've got to create clarity for your team. You have to give them clear, simple instructions. And I go back to my military days. You know, military is famous for the KISS principle. Keep it simple, stupid. That is right on. Yeah. And, and that's not a condescending statement. It's, it's, a, it, it's a literal life-saving directive. If you can give clarity, you know, I need you to go from here over to that hill there. Don't go anywhere else. Just go there and you'll be okay. Well, that's, that can be a life-saving move. Absolutely. And for me, from a leadership perspective as well, I've worked both on my own startups, but as an executive or as a senior, uh, let's say, leader in uh, bigger companies as well. And I would go in and my first view would be, what are our meet- what's our meeting schedule? I saw in one case, I won't go into details, but there was a four-hour set of time for like 10 people to sit around the table talking about something that was fairly straightforward and obvious, as I saw it. We weren't breaking new ground. You know, it wasn't a massive brainstorming session about the next generation of products or anything like that. So I went into the meeting on the first day and I said, like, we've got four hours set here. Here's a challenge, guys. Why don't we try and do this in 30 minutes? Then we can go down and have a cup, a cup of coffee, talk about the game, what we did for the weekend, you know, kick stuff around on a social kind of style level. If we can do everything that we've got to do that we had scheduled for the four-hour slot, let's do that in 30 minutes and then go and have a chat for 30 minutes. We can go back to our desks or we can go and do what we have to do, get on the phones, whatever. You know, all this kind of stuff. We, they said, but we usually do this. This is a four-hour slot. And I said, yeah, usually let's park that for a while. 35 minutes later, we had done everything that we needed to do. We ticked all the boxes in terms of the work schedule. Everything was good. We went down, we had a coffee, a chat, and we talked about general shoot the breeze stuff. The level of bonding that was created by doing that subsequent to getting the work done was great. We got the work done in 35 minutes. We didn't have four hours sitting there kind of looking at each other, trying to outdo each other in terms of comments and feedback and all that. It just made it very, very easy. I love that word, easy. You know, yeah. it, probably be, uh, <laughs> it probably would be my epitaph. He just made it easier, maybe. <laughs> because, you know, I don't know whether it's, a, it's like a need to, I love to see innovation in everything that we do. I love to see things improving. If we can make life easier and if we can make people's lives easier, then we've done a good job while we're here. We're here for a short stay on this planet. Our contribution has to be valuable. And if that benefits both us, our families and society, then that's a win, win, win as far as I'm concerned. I'm with you. And I tell you what, I think I'm going to call that our benediction and we're going to put a bow on this show. Uh, Patrick, it's been a pleasure, man, to uh, to talk and, and share and tell folks the best way to get a hold of you if they're wanting to know more from you. Sure. Um, it, it's it's great to chat today, Doug. Um, this has been a really enjoyable uh, discussion. And uh, my contact details, if you want to get me, is jump onto LinkedIn. It's probably the best way to get me. Um, Patrick Noel Daly, uh, that's N-O-E-L in the middle, Patrick and Daly, D-A-L-Y. Um, and Patrick is pretty obvious. There's a lot of us Patricks and Paddies around the world, so Patrick is fairly easy. <laughs> well, good. And we will have that in the show notes, folks, if you didn't catch it on the fly there. Speaking of, uh, we've got a video of this episode over on YouTube, a channel by the same name, Leadership 
powered by common sense, hop over there and uh, take a listen. I do want to remind people that if you're traveling about the globe, this show is available on the IBGR network. That's IBGR.network. Uh, we are broadcast in 165 countries around the globe. So uh, if you're out and about, as Patrick does, and uh, don't have your, your regular connections and things for any reason, check out the network there. But uh, for now, we're going to sign off, say goodbye, and thank you for listening in. I hope to see you again real soon. You've been listening to Leadership Powered by Common Sense, hosted by Doug Thorpe. If you would like to know more about the coaching and advisory services he provides, visit DougThorpe.com.